Turn to Isaiah chapter 41. That seems a little loud, doesn't it? Testing one, two, mic check. Okay. Isaiah 41, beginning at verse 14. And uh, we'll be going down through the whole chapter this evening. Maybe this will give me a chance to, to, you know, speak nice and softly to you. But that doesn't mean I want anybody to fall asleep. Okay, so from time to time. I might raise my voice and make sure that you won't fall asleep. Okay. Isaiah 41, beginning at verse 14. Fear not, you worm Jacob. I just love the way this starts. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord. And your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small, and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. If I were to ask you what you would rather be called, a servant or a worm, I think that the answer would be more than obvious. <laughs> you all want to be called worms. I kind of figured that right off the bat. No, I think you'd rather be called servants. You don't like worms, unless you just love them. But you know, when we look back at verses 8 through 10 of this chapter... We see the title the Lord gives to His people Israel as He exhorts them not to fear anything coming their way. So go back a few verses to verse 8. It says, But you, Israel, are my servant. Now this is a tremendous title. He says, Israel, you are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen. The descendants of Abraham, my friend. You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And so there, the title of my servant is truly an honorable one. My servant. One given to leaders such as Moses, David, and the prophets. Not to mention the Messiah himself. Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. This is a very important uh, setup to where we're going here. So it's important that we take, take note of when this title is given. My servant. In Numbers chapter 12, for Moses, it says in verse 6, Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings, and he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? That's a special, honorable title. To David in Second Samuel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. It says, Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it, 
For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. My servant David. A very special and honorable title. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, speaking of the prophets, it says, Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. My servants, the prophets. And then, of course, of the Messiah himself in the next chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, verse 1. God says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So in these particular examples of the, of the use of that title, my servant, we see it as an honorable one. But is there then any honor in being labeled a worm? For the word worm here that the Lord uses, tola in, in, the, in the Hebrew, literally describes a worm or a maggot. Now, I know that sometimes even just the, you know, just the, 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 the very voicing of the word maggot, you know, you all seen maggots, right? Everybody watch CSI, you have a lot of maggots on CSI. It was a worm, by the way, more specifically, it was a worm that was used to make a red dye. It was a word used to make a red dye. Interesting. But this particular word for worm describes what God's people were in themselves. Listen, what God's people were in themselves in contrast to being servants, which is what they were by God's grace and calling. By God's grace and calling, they were servants. But they were worms in themselves. Now consider that the connection needs to be made with the previous verse. So let's tie verse 13 with verse 14 here. Because we, we, don't, lose sight of, of, we don't lose sight of the context here. The context is very, very solid. It's not just one thing and then another. The context is solid. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. You see the connection. The help that God is giving them. The help that God is saying, I am your help. I am your strength. But He calls them worm, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. And you've got to remember that, that God is consoling His people. He's offering comfort to His people. There, I mean, these were interesting words of comfort because the Lord is calling His people a worm. It doesn't seem like a pretty picture to say the least. And I'm sure that many have had a, a tough time accepting this concept. I mean, some would say that it isn't good for our self-image for God to be calling us, or Israel for that matter, a worm. Oh, God, don't call us worms. What about our self-esteem, you know, our self-image? Who wants to be a little, you know, creepy, crawly thing, you know? So how could God call us worms? Aren't, aren't we 
kings, aren't we children of the king, you know, aren't we the king's kids, you know. Listen, a worm is weak. Now it has its strength in and of itself, if you study them very carefully, but overall, just, just, just think in comparison to everything else, a worm is weak. Moving around in the dust of the earth, not being much of a threat to anyone, but an easy prey to many. And I know what it was like when you would see a worm. If you didn't like worms and you'd see worms, I know what it was like. You'd go, ew, yuck, and then you'd go like this. Poor worm. But you get the idea. Have any of you recently heard any reports of killer worms? Anywhere? CSN, I mean CNN, Fox News. Killer worms attacking New York. Are there any renegade bands of worms terrorizing women and children or eating up the countryside? I, we, we haven't really seen that quite yet anywhere. Notice that the thought or the idea of a worm is attached to the name Jacob. Did you see that? It is attached to the name Jacob while the thought or idea of men is connected with Israel. Just the name Jacob alone. Yaakov. Heel catcher, literally. Supplanter and thief. That's what Jacob means. Those of you that have named your kids Jacob, you've just named him a thief. That's, that's what his name means. And we love our Jacobs here. We love all of them, and it's a wonderful Jewish name and all. But that's what it means. I mean, bottom line, you know, that's what it means. But just the name Jacob alone refers back to Israel's lowly and deceitful past. That's what it refers to. His lowly and deceitful past. And so it is by no means an honor... But then again, I want you to think of David's prophecy about Messiah on the cross and his very thoughts there. What were the Messiah's very thoughts on the cross? And, and which, which psalm brings us there? Psalm 22. And there in Psalm 22, verse 6, David, in, in, in prophetic voice, in prophetic vision, if you, you keep it all in context, it says, but I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. It was the place of reproach. When he calls himself a worm, he is speaking of the place of his reproach. It is a place of reproach. Reproach means it is a criticism, it is an insult, it is a censure, it is a reprimand, it is a rebuke. The place of all of those things. Where was that? In history, the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ, or as it says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. What would you say then if you had that kind of reaction being on the cross? Would you not say, I am a worm and no man? What were they looking upon on that cross? 
Too often if we look at uh, crucifixes, we see a very tame image of Jesus, maybe with some drops of blood from his hands and drops of blood from his feet and his side, crown of thorns. But that's not the picture. What we saw on the cross was a, a bloody, bloody piece of meat. It's interesting that the word worm that is used in the Hebrew is the word that says, that, that describes a worm that it was used for a red dye. How interesting. When all we could see on the cross, if we were to have seen it ourselves, would be red. The blood of Jesus. So let me put it this way. The Lord knows what it is like to be a worm. The Lord knows what it is like to be a worm. And so He is not saying to them this. Please understand. He is not saying to them in Isaiah, Fear not, you most highly prized, you most valuable and important people who the world just can't live without. He's not saying this. Oh, listen, you most highly prized people, I'm not going to let you down because you're so highly prized. He's not saying that. Where do people get the idea that God values us in that way? Okay, now understand, He does value us. I'm getting to that. Understand that the Lord's help does not depend on our deserving it. The Lord's help does not depend on our deserving it. That's the point. Our value does not depend on what we've done or what people think of us. Our value depends on who values us. That was a loving statement, even though we take it hard, when he says, Fear not, you worm Jacob. Our value depends on who values us. Take, for example... Baseball cards. How many of you guys used to collect baseball cards years ago? I did, man, and, and, and not for the gum that used to come with it. You remember some of the, those gums, man? They break your gums, or I mean your teeth. And then you have to go for gum surgery, man, because those things are, you know. But, and then later on, I don't think they put gum anymore. I think there, were, you know, there was a dental warning, so they didn't put gum anymore. But baseball cards, you remember them. Let me see those hands again. Okay, boy, this is going to be hard on you guys, but listen. There is nothing of intrinsic built-in value in a baseball card. It is simply a piece of cardboard with some colored ink on it. But there are some cards out there that are valued at hundreds of dollars and even some in the thousands. At one time, a Ken Griffey Jr. 1998 Upper deck baseball card was priced at $3,000. Just thought I'd mention that. Now, these cards aren't valuable because they're made of expensive stuff. What did I say it was? Cardboard with a little colored ink. So these cards are not made of expensive stuff. They're valuable because someone is silly enough to pay a high price for them. Sorry, guys. But please get the point. And God was silly enough to pay an amazingly high price for you and me. Forgive me for saying it that way, but that's the point we need to see here. 
God was silly enough to pay an amazingly high price for you and for me. You know why? Because we know what we're made of. He had His only begotten Son put to death in our place. We, like Israel, are a worm. We have no strength in and of ourselves, no ability in and of ourselves to attain the heights of heaven. Helpless, naive, and vulnerable, that's what we are. And yet God says, fear not. Why? Because our redemption is not founded on our abilities or our efforts to hang on to God. It is God who has reached down to us and taken our hand. And folks, let me tell you this. He is not letting go. He's not letting go. We can be silly. We can be sometimes stupid. And we can do things that are outside of of rationality. And He's not letting go. I sometimes think that He puts us on a little bit of a long leash and we kind of go and then we choke ourselves down the way, but he'll just pull us right back. He's not letting go. In John chapter 10, verse 27, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I want you to notice what he says, And I give them eternal life. I don't, I don't understand this concept where some people teach that Jesus never promised eternal life, that he only promised temporal life. And, you know, there's, there's certain things that we have to do to, you know, to earn eternal life. No, I'm sorry, that is not what the Bible says. Jesus said, And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father... Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Eternal life. Never perish. Because He knows us. (laughs) We're worms. You get the picture now? Getting back to the worms mentioned, the idea of redemption is given to us as well in that, following, in that verse and following. Look at verse 14 again. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you, you, uh, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord God, says the Lord and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with, with, with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The, the, the wind shall carry them away. In other words, to winnow is you know, to take this, this big you know, pitchfork type thing and catch, you know, cast that up in the air and the wind will come and take all the bad stuff away. You shall winnow them, the wind shall carry them away, and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. He says, fear not says the Lord and your Redeemer. He is the one who redeems us. He is the one who redeems Israel. He is the Holy One of Israel. The Hebrew word for Redeemer is the word Goel. And some of you know that word very, uh, very dearly to your heart. Uh, the, the Goel was the next of kin who takes upon himself his people's needs as if they were his own. The kinsman redeemer, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Boaz, in the book of Ruth, was a kinsman redeemer, a type of Christ as the kinsman redeemer who takes upon himself his people's needs as if they were his own. And that's a beautiful picture of redemption. 
of the Redeemer Himself who redeems us, who pays a price to get us back. In Isaiah 35, verse 10, a few chapters earlier that we studied, it says the ransom of the Lord shall return. Do you know that in the previous verse, it talks about them as being the redeemed. So the ransomed of the Lord are the redeemed of the Lord. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. It is a precious thing to have a Redeemer like Jesus Christ who has paid the price and bought us with His blood. And in verses 15 and 16 of our text, the Lord is saying that He will take the nation of Israel who is weak and lowly like a worm and raise them up. Can you imagine a worm with teeth and threshing mountains into dust like chaff? That's exactly what he's saying. You worm, I'm going to make you a real strong worm. And you're going to be a real vicious worm. And you're going to have teeth. And you're going to go out there like a sledgehammer type thing. You know, the threshing sledge. And they're just, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm being figurative here. right? <laughs> but they're going to, I mean... They're going to go and tear down. Things are going to change because God is their power, see. Understand. This would be, this would be seen many times in the history of Israel, coming out of, coming out of Egypt, going into the land of Israel. No one could stop them. Except Ai, and that was another story, but they learned a lesson from that. There, there was some sense of this when Israel returned from its captivity to their land after the Babylonian captivity. It would be that way in the history of modern Israel for 1948. As Israel declared its independence, a war broke out against them by an enemy that would have easily numbered. Listen, all the surrounding Arab nations that hated Israel for, for becoming a nation, all of those nations could have equaled 80 million people against this little nation that had very few arms, that had no warplanes, they hardly had any tanks, And they could have been destroyed in one day. Honestly, they could have been destroyed in one day. There's a story of, of one small plane. It was almost like a Cessna type thing. They had this one small plane with a pilot and another person on board who was toss, tossing Molotov cocktails upon Egyptian warships below. And you know what happened? The warships retreated. Can you imagine? One little plane, and the warships of Egypt retreat. The stories of the 1967 war, the June, uh, the, the Six-Day War, have these, these tremendous uh, 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 stories of, of one tanker, one, one, one uh, Israeli tank, fighting uh, you know, whole units of tanks, and going up and down the hills in the desert out there, shooting when he gets to the top. All of this, this, this uh, group of, of tanks, they said, man, we're being attacked by one tank. You see, it wasn't the strength of Israel. It was the strength of their God that brought them to victory and survival. The strength of their God. Turn to Psalm 68 and look at these verses, wonderful verses of Scripture. Psalm 68, verses 33 through 35. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens, which were of old. Indeed, he sends out his voice, a mighty voice. 
ascribed strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and His strength is in the clouds. Oh God, You are more awesome than Your holy places. The God of Israel is He who gives strength and power to His people. Blessed be God. Isn't that a tremendous statement? How do we ever miss that when we think that God has His hand over His people? So as we move on, then we see why Israel was not to fear. Their God has abundant resources. And let me say this, since then, His abundant resources haven't dried up. He still has them. They're immeasurable. The resources of God are immeasurable for His people. His people Israel and His people the church. They are immeasurable. Look at verse 17 of our text now. The poor and needy seek water. But there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Time and time again, in which we, one of these days we ought to just sit down, each and every one of us, we ought to sit down and, and go through the scriptures, if you can, from a you know, Bible program, computer, it's a lot quicker that way, because you, all you have to do is type in the word forsake or not forsake. And bring up every time that God says to his people, I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will be with you always. And see how many times we are blessed by God's promise to his people. He says, I will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Verse 18, I will open, the, I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the, of the valleys. Does that not kind of describe our lives kind of in a, in a picture where we have highs and lows? Israel did too. They have their highs and they have their, had their lows. I will open rivers and desolate heights, fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness a cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together. Interesting types of trees being planted out in the wilderness. Would make sense to us. It makes all the sense in the world to God. He can plant anything anywhere He wants because He can always provide the resources to keep them going. And I think that's another picture that we need to see here of how God takes us and plants us in places where we wonder, Lord God, where are we going to get the resources we need? And God says, well, because I'm God. Don't you trust me? It's about time we start trusting God. I got a little ahead of myself there. Verse 20, then, that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Something that we, along with Israel, need to always remember. The hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. Have you done anything? Have you created anything? Did Israel create anything? Did Israel do anything with their hands? Nothing that God didn't give them the strength and the will and the ability to do. You see, when when the Jews 
when Jews returned and came into the land, uh, which was called Palestine at one time and all, but uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Zionism was growing in Europe and a lot of people were wanting to return to the land. They began, to, they began that, that move to the land. The land was, was really just a barren wasteland. It's hardly anything out there. It's pretty much all desert. Uh, the Turks, who had, uh, had uh, uh, you know, the control over that particular area and that, that land, had destroyed it by cutting down the trees. The Turks cut all the trees down. But since the birth of modern Israel, millions of trees have been planted in the land. Millions. As a matter of fact, I read somewhere where they, they honestly believe that now billions have been planted. I think, man, that's a lot of trees. Billion, even a billion, just right up to one billion trees is a lot of trees. But, but you should see it. You should see Israel. And they got trees everywhere. <laughs> but, and, and not just trees. I mean, they got fruit trees. And, and a lot of fruit. You see, the desert is in bloom again. As God had said Israel is the third largest nation in agricultural production behind the US and Canada in fact 80% of the fruit that's in the European Union comes from Israel now that might be changing the more that Europe hates Israel more you know but but even still they hate them but they'll take their fruit you know nothing nothing is too hard for the Lord to miraculously supply water to his people as well as shelter. You remember Moses taking the people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt and wandering through the wilderness. They, they said, Moses, you brought us out here to die. We've got no water. God provides water. Then they complained about food. Oh, God, you know. And then God provides the food, you know. Every place where they needed something, God provided it. But rather than trust the Lord, they began to murmur and they began to complain. And so there was then that you know thing where God says, "Well, Moses, your people," and Moses said, "No, my, they're yours." God, they didn't want to, you know. <laughs> whose whose people are they? You know. But God always provided. You see, the, the trees that are mentioned go back here to verse nineteen. It isn't just water, because water is certainly essential, but, but it isn't just water, because the trees mentioned in verse 19 point to shelter, not sustenance. Those trees that are mentioned here in this particular passage are not fruit trees, by the way. I mentioned that Israel has a lot of fruit trees, but these are not fruit trees. Water and shade were the two greatest needs traveling the desert. So God planted, God planted shade trees for them. See, God is able to refresh us in the heights and in the valleys of our life. The desolate heights sometimes, you know, see, you can climb up mountains. You know, we've been to Masada there in Israel, in the southern uh, part of Israel where it's nice and hot, and you have to you go on this tramway to get up to the top of Masada, and you think, how does water get up here? You have to, you know, <laughs> there's, there's no water unless God provides it. Verse 20 reminds us that our fruitfulness points to the Lord. Our fruitfulness points to the Lord. He says that you may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. When people see the kinds of things that God's living water is doing in our lives, 
Now, who is the living water? Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is everything to us. He's our water. He's our living water. When people see the kinds of things that God's living water is doing in our lives, they will recognize God's work in us. When others will see God's living water working in us and, 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 and doing uh, a sustenance in our lives and all, the world will recognize God's work. John, John 15 verse 8 says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. The bearing of fruit in our lives comes from that living water that is Jesus Christ. The final picture in this chapter now brings us back to the courtroom. If you remember when we started uh, chapter 41, we were in the courtroom. and God was bringing forth a case against the world, the Gentiles, and their idols. And, and so we're back in the courtroom where, where we began putting idolatry on trial. Look at verse 21. It says, present your case, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the king of Jacob. Interesting statement, the king of Jacob. Uh, it's not often found that way. We see him as the king of Israel, you know, the holy one of Israel, but here he's the king of Jacob. Brings back that picture of Jacob's lowliness and need for God. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were. Now what's he saying? Present your case, bring your strong reasons. Speaking to the Gentiles, speaking to uh, the idols. Let them bring forth, show us what will happen. Let them show the former things what they were, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them or declare to us things to come. Again, the picture of what he's saying to them about presenting their case. Show the things that are to come hereafter, that, that we may know that you are God's. Yes, do good or do evil. That we may be dismayed and see it together. Indeed, you are nothing. And your work is nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. You see, he presents the case. Listen, the Lord is laying out a challenge. The Lord is laying out a challenge not only to those who are following after idols, but to the idols themselves. This is what the challenge is here. It is quite interesting that the Lord is fair. He's being fair. Not condemning the idols, the false gods of the nations, and those who worship them without a fair trial. So he says, present your case. He's telling the world and the idols, present your case. So tell us the future. Tell us what is to come. Tell us which way to go. Do something, he says. You're gods, aren't you? You see the sarcasm here? Do something. It, it, it just, he, he's, he's not condemning them without a fair trial. And so he invites them to present their case. Let's hear your best arguments. Not one argument, by the way, is presented. And so God questions the idols. Can any of the world's idols speak? Can any of you speak? Can they talk about the past or predict the future? <laughs> are, 
Are they real or not? You see what he says? He says, do something. Do good or evil. I mean, can't you do anything? And so in verse 24, the accusation is given based on the evidence. You are nothing. Your work is nothing. And the one who chooses you is an abomination. That is heavy. Because he's speaking of those who would choose to worship an idol. The idols are nothing. Their work is nothing. But the one who chooses you, that is an abomination. I mean, that may be bringing it too close to home here, isn't it? Bringing it too close to home. Even in our highly sophisticated society. Don't we live in a highly sophisticated society? Oh, we are, we are quite the intellectuals today. We are quite the intelligent people today. In this highly sophisticated society, we think idols aren't worshipped anymore. But idolatry is alive and well in America as well as around the world. Idolatry is still going on. What is the passion of some people's lives? Just think of that question for a moment. What is the passion of some people's lives? Is it cars? Is it sports? Is it money? Is it work? Is it women? Is it men? Is it music? Is it entertainment? You know, the list could go on and on and on. All of these things and more qualify being gods to people. People that make objects gods. I mean, what's, a, what's, what, what's, a, what's a, a, an idol? Something you bow down to. You worship it. Worship is giving your whole worth into that stuff. All of these things and more qualify being gods to people. Let me ask it this way. What is it that consumes your life? What consumes your life? Is it the living and true God? Does, does Jesus consume your life? I hope so. I hope that Jesus consumes our life in everything we do in this life. Where we, where we work, where we go to school, where we live, wherever we go, whatever we do, whether it's in our pleasures, whether it's in our, our, our recreations, whether it's in our, our, our businesses, whatever it is, is God consuming our lives? Is Christ consuming us? Because you see, in the living God and in Christ, there's something that do things that are wonderful and good, and we see the outcome of what they do. They're not like the idols of this world that do nothing and can't say anything. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for just a moment. There's a, there's a little verse of Scripture that kills a lot of people today, even in the church. We're going to cover it here tonight. We're going to cover a lot of stuff here uh, in verse uh, 1 and through 6 of 1 Corinthians 8. It says, Now, he says, Concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. But notice this next phrase. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. It is a very sad thing today when people... Uh, are proud of their knowledge but have no love of Christ toward someone or toward people. Knowledge puffs up. People start to have this thing about, oh man, we just, 
There are some people today who think they know more than God. It sounds weird, but they think they know more than God. They think they know more than the servants of God, more than the prophets of God, more than the apostles of Christ. And so they question everything because knowledge puffs up, you see. It's a pride issue. But love edifies. Love builds up. Now, we are all called to know. We are all called to grow in the love of Christ, to grow in the knowledge of Christ. We are, we are, we are called to study God's word, study to show yourself approved of God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. These things we understand. But when we get to the place where we think that we know it all, we're in trouble. You know what we've just become? An idol to ourselves. And so listen to what he says. He says, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he's no, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. <laughs> I think that's pretty clear, pretty sound. And we don't have to, you know, how do you interpret that? Well, just read it. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. See, to love God is really the key here. To have a heart toward God, to say, Lord, I'm nothing. Guess what I am, Lord? I'm just a worm. But you give me wisdom and understanding. He goes on and says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is what? An idol is what? Nothing. In the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. You see, with them, with God, the, with, you know, the, the Godhead, with, with the triune God, I mean, we have life in Him, and another scripture says, in Him we live and move and have our being because of God. Acts chapter 17, as a matter of fact. Turn to Psalm, 5, Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Let's look at the contrast to the, our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the contrast, Psalm 115, verse 4. It says, their, their idols, speaking of the Gentiles, uh, are, are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Uh, those who make them are like them. Uh, and see, this is the problem. This kind of connects us to that statement that those who choose to follow idols are an abomination. It says those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. You're just like, a, you're just like all of those things. No mind, no eyes, no ears, no tongue. An abomination. Because an idol is an abomination before the Lord. And so we come now. With all of this painted before us, we've come now to the Lord's summation in this case. We come to the summation of the case. That idols are worthless and man is absolutely limited. Remember this, God is unlimited in all that he can do. Man is limited to what he can do. And so, with that in mind, look at verse 25. I have raised up one from the north, and he shall come. From the rising of the sun he shall call on my name, and he shall come against princes as though, as though mortar, as the potter treads clay. 
So you begin to see how the picture of this, the strength of this one who comes. A, a potter treading clay is, you know, he can just take you know, whatever he's making, a potter does. If he doesn't like it, he just breaks it up. The vessel never breaks the potter up. So who's in control? Got the picture. Verse 26, who has declared from the beginning that we may know, and former times that we may say he is righteous? Surely there is no one who shows, surely there is no one who declares, surely there is no one who hears your words. You see, he's giving the summation about idols and those who follow them. Verse 27, the first time I said to Zion, look, there they are. And I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings. God, see, when he speaks, he makes things happen. For I looked, and there was no man. I looked among them, but there was no counselor who, when I asked of them, could answer a word. Indeed, they were all worthless. Speaking of men, their works are nothing, or speaking of idols, I should say, their works are nothing. Their molded images are wind and confusion. So the tie together of all of this is that both the idols and those who follow them are worthless and are nothing. So no matter how much people do to prop up their idols and defiance to the God of Israel, it is the Lord alone who knows the future. You know, that's been proven time and time and time and time again. We see the Old Testament scriptures, that, in particular those that point to Jesus Christ. We see them. They are, uh, they are prophesied hundreds of years before they happen. And then what do we know? We know that they happened. God's word was perfect. God's word of predicting the future. Why? Because what we learned about God before. He is outside of our time continuum. He is, he is eternal. He knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. So he can see all things. So if that's the case, why, why don't we follow him? It's the Lord who alone knows the future. It was the Lord alone who would raise up Cyrus from the east and have him conquer Babylon from the north. If you remember, we talked about him coming from the east, which he was east of, of Israel. But when he conquered Babylon, he conquered Babylon from the north. Why? Because the Medo-Persian Empire was north of, of Babylon. So both, both statements are right. And so God is right, and even in this, it was the Lord alone who could raise up Cyrus from the east and have him conquer Babylon from the north. It was the Lord alone who would use Cyrus to allow the Jews in exile to return to Zion. There is a Jewish tradition that states that as the Medo-Persians under Cyrus defeated the Babylons, Daniel the prophet came out to meet Cyrus and showed him the scroll of Isaiah where God calls Cyrus by name 150 years before his birth. Cyrus then saw the God of Israel who encouraged him to let his people go and let them return to their land. Now I said this is a traditional teaching. It's a traditional story. And whether this is of course true or not, one thing is for certain. One thing is for certain because it is documented in our scriptures, in the Hebrew scriptures, it is documented in Ezra chapter 1. Turn there if you will. In Ezra chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now Ezra, if you need to find in your Bibles, is right before Nehemiah. This is after, you know, Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah, and then working toward Job and the Psalms and all that. Okay, so you know where it is. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord 
by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Now this is documented. His name, where he's from, who he is, and it says, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. This is Cyrus speaking of the God of Israel. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. What did we just see in, in, in Isaiah? I have raised him from the north. He shall come from the rising of the sun. You shall call my name on my name. He shall come against princes as mortar. And of course, that's Babylon. Okay. So you get the picture here. What's taking place? He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God. Now who's saying this? Cyrus, king of Persia, which is in Jerusalem. Verse 4. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. No tradition here as far as uh, legend or whatever. This is documented history. Documented history. 150 years after Cyrus is named in the scriptures, he, he's, he's born. A few years later, he conquers Babylon. He comes into contact with God's people. And he does exactly what God says he's going to do. Is this not the God who knows? Our God? Our great and awesome God? Why should anyone trust in emptiness when they can trust in the true and living God who abides forever and who cares wholeheartedly for his people? As we close this particular chapter, I, I want you to consider His promises throughout this whole chapter. Consider the promises throughout this whole chapter. He says, I will strengthen you, verse 10. I will help you, verses 10, 13, and 14. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, verse 10. I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth, verse 15. I will open rivers and desolate heights, verse 18. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, verse 18. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, verse 19. I will set in the desert the cypress tree, verse 19. I will give to Jerusalem one who brings good tidings, verse 27. I will, I will, I will, I will. What does he say? I will strengthen, I will help, I will uphold, I will make, I will open, I will make, I will plant, I will set, I will give. That is the God of Israel to His people. What a contrast to Satan's I wills. You remember Satan's I wills in chapter 14, verse 13 and 14? For you have said in your heart, speaking of Lucifer, by the way, but nonetheless this is Satan's heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Folks, Satan's I wills were proud and they were selfish. The, 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 the Lord's I wills were for the benefit and blessing of His people. Do you see the tremendous contrast here? Satan's proclamations will never come to pass. 
He will never be any of those things. It will never come to pass. But each and every one of God's promises have and will happen because He knows the weakness of the one to whom He makes His promise. And yet He says, I will. Now do you see the importance of the worm? Do you see the importance now? Fear not, you worm of Jacob. If anyone knows what a worm is, it is Messiah himself. It is Messiah himself who says, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men despised. For how many years has God carried his people Israel, despised throughout all of history, rejected of many men throughout all of history, and folks right now faces the same attitude of many peoples. They hate Israel. But God says, fear not, you worm of Jacob. Remember who you are because you need to know who I am. I will strengthen you. I will help you. Just remember the picture of that worm with teeth. Got it? God's strength, not ours. God's purposes, not ours. God's plans, not ours. God's work, our benefit, our blessing, and Israel's blessing. Let's pray.